too many books tonight here. Well, we've been in Galatians for a few weeks. How are we doing? Doing all right? Are we enjoying ourselves? I mean, you don't have a choice. We're in Galatians again, but um, hopefully you are all being as blessed in going through Galatians as I am. I always find that, and I think I've said this before, when you have to teach through something, I feel like it's, it's almost uh, to our betterment to teach it than it is for all of you to just be listening to it. I'm sure that everybody who's been able to teach or preach before can understand that. But uh, I've definitely been impacted by this study. And so I'm, I'm excited to go through this, this passage tonight. There's just some really great things. But before we get to the scripture, uh, I wanted to actually read something out of a, a book. How many people like stories? You know, I, I love talking about stories. I think stories is one of the best way to convey truth. And um, how many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress? If you haven't, you should. And if you already have, you should read it again. But we actually have this um, I'm reading through with my, uh, with my girls. And it's The Little Pilgrim's Progress. And it's, it's written in, in nice little bite-sized chunks and, and sort of written in a way that's more uh, kid-friendly. Um, so the characters are all animals. And it's actually illustrated really well. But I wanted to read one portion of this tonight. It's going to be a, a little bit longer. Oh, that's too far. You don't want to hear that. That spoils it. Okay. Um, I'm going to read through one section here that actually was pretty impactful to me. Um, as I was reading through this with my, with my kiddos, um, I, it, it stuck in my head. So this was actually something we read last week. We're, we're past it now, but uh, if you want to, you can go ahead and close your eyes. And if you fall asleep, then that's, that's really what the bedtime story is for. So that's okay. Uh, but this is called Ignorance Crosses the River. When ignorance entered the land of delight, the animals who met him spoke kindly to him, as they had done to Christian and hopeful. But they soon found out that he was not a true pilgrim and that he did not care to talk with them. So they left him by himself. He passed by the gate of the king's gardens, but the gardeners did not invite him to come in. And the shining ones, although they often watched him as he walked along, did not speak to him or give him any gracious message from the king. At last he came to the brink of the dark river. He could see the walls of the celestial city on the other side, and he knew that his journey would not be ended until he had crossed the river. He stood for a few minutes, wondering what he should do. And then he lay down on the grass. I'll rest a little, he thought, and perhaps someone else will be coming presently. I don't see any bridge, and there must be a boat to carry the pilgrims over. There was a boat, but it belonged to the wicked prince, and the king's pilgrims never used it. The boatman, whose name was Vain Hope, soon saw ignorance lying on the bank and rowed toward him. It is time for you to go over the river, he said. I've brought my boat for you. Ignorance was pleased, and he got up at once, saying, I suppose the king sent you. Yes, replied the muskrat. The water is not very deep in some places, and many pilgrims try to walk through it, but there is no need to do so because I am always ready to take them over. He held out his hand, and Ignorance took it and stepped into the boat. Then 
Vain hope caught up the oar and rowed quickly across the rough water. What shall I do now? asked Ignorance. As he climbed up into the, onto the opposite bank, Vain hope pointed to a little winding path. That is the best way, he said. It is smooth and easy. If the shining ones had come to meet you, they would have taken you up another road which is steep and difficult to climb. Go straight up to the gate and you'll soon find your way to the king's palace. And he pushed the boat off from the shore and ignorance turned around and began to climb up the hill toward the city. He did not meet anyone and when he reached the gates, he found that they were closed. He looked up and saw some words written above the archway in golden letters. Blessed are they that do his commandments. Well, thought ignorance, I have obeyed the king always. And he knocked at the gate. He quite forgot that the king had desired his pilgrims to begin their journey at the narrow gate and to travel by the way of the cross. He had heard of this many times, but he did not care about it. And so the king's blessing could not be given to him. He knocked twice, but no one opened the gates. Presently, one of the king's servants came up the top of the archway and looked down. And when he saw ignorance, he said, where do you come from? And why are you knocking at the king's gate? I'm a pilgrim, replied the squirrel. I've just crossed the river and I wish to live in the celestial city. Oh, I'll take up your rule, said the king's servant, and I'll carry it to my master. Ignorance knew he had not received a rule, but he put his hands into the folds of his clothes and pretended to feel for it. The king's servant waited a while and at last said, I'm afraid you've come without one. Then he went down from the gate to ask the king what he should do. Poor ignorance stood outside, and now he began to wish that he had not been so careless in his journey. The city is so beautiful, he thought. I should like to have lived here always, and I'm afraid they will not let me go in. Then two of the shining ones came quickly, and they bound the hands and the feet of the foolish squirrel, and they carried him away from the celestial city into the country of the wicked prince. His cruel master rejoiced when he was brought back and took care that he should never again have a chance of escaping. It was your own fault, he said, when he found ignorance crying bitterly and thought of his lost happiness. If you had really wished to live with the king, you should have done exactly what he told you. Needless to say, we had to read another chapter before they went to sleep. Um, but there are a lot of people who think that as long as you somehow can make it to the end that you'll get let in I'm sure we can think of other people in, in our own lives and maybe family members or friends who really do think as long as they can somehow make it to the end there that they'll be able to enter and the thing that really haunted me when I read that chapter was what he said when he read about the commands. He said, I've, I've always kept the king's commands. I've always done that. And yet he could not enter. And as we've been talking about the true gospel, I, I really am 
concerned that there are so many who are around us who think that they would enter. They think that they are actually just fine. They think they're good. They think they're traveling the path well because they've kept the king's commandments except they have entered the wrong way. And I think that actually applies to these passages that we've been looking at in Galatians. There are some who think that by shouldering some of the load of redemption that somehow they will earn some form of merit, something that the king will look down on and see that they have added something that they might be welcomed, that this accomplishment will give them favor, but we must trust in something or better, we must trust in someone greater than ourselves. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter 3. This section here that we're going to look at is sort of in three different sections. So we're going to take this first one here. And it's such a difficult letter in some places to break up. So we're kind of right in the middle of one larger section here. Um, but look at verse 10. If you don't have your Bible with you, and you're, you can use your newfangled electronic phone Bible, or you can uh, look at one of the Bibles down, down below there. But uh, I'd love for us to, to actually take a look at, at the words here. Because the words are important. Let's look at verse 10. We're, we're going to look at this first chunk here, verses 10 through um, 13. We're going to kind of take these as, as a chunk. So uh, verse 10, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. And then verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. We'll get to verse 14 in just a second here. But there's something that I want to point out. Paul is, is uh, well, let me just say this. We have to remember who Paul is. Who, who is Paul? Paul is definitely a master of the law. Right? If, if we remember his biography, he was, he was trained up, in, and even as a young man, joined the Pharisees, which is a, a pretty great accomplishment. I don't think we highlight this enough. He was a young man who was a Pharisee, which is very difficult to do. It requires a lot of um, memorization of the, of the Old Testament and mastery of concepts. He was taught by Gamaliel, who was the greatest of teachers at the, at the time, and he pretty much was the one to take his spot. He was being primed to be the teacher of Israel, many scholars think. And so he's, he's in this position and then he meets the Lord. And it's interesting where he meets the Lord too because it kind of plays into some of this. Uh, where, where was he when he met the Lord? On the road to Damascus. That road travels through an area, uh, the Bashan. This, there's an area that is chiefly Gentile in its, in its history. And so it's interesting that he was called, and even though he was a master of the law, he was called to be an apostle to who? To the Gentiles. 
And so there he was in this foreign country, essentially this foreign area, called to be the apostle to the Gentiles. What a weird matchup that may have been. Right? He's a practitioner and master of the law of Moses, and he gets called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And I point all this out because in this section, Paul is talking about how the law is maybe not what you think it is. And what does he use to prove his point? The law. If we look at verse 10, there's a quotation here. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. We read that and we think this feels contradictory. But it's actually pretty important where some of these quotes come from. So this quote comes from the end of Deuteronomy. Uh, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 27. In this section, this is the blessings and the curses. It's worth a read to go through and to to read this section. Because what this was, this was an explanation of the covenant of the law. The covenant with uh, or through Moses, some would say, the covenant that God had with himself concerning the people of Israel that was then given to the people of Israel. But the point was, this was the last of the curses that God said would fall upon them if they did not accomplish the law. So, a couple points here, because this sounds like an advocation for following the law. But what this is, this is sort of encapsulating all these things. What they would do, and they they did this once they got into the promised land. So in Deuteronomy, these were written and they were read, but when they got in the promised land, they went to a place called Shechem, which we don't have time to talk about Shechem. But it's a pretty pivotal place. But there are two mountains there. Shechem is valley. There's Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And what they did is half of the tribes went to one side, Half the tribes went on the other mountain. One side would yell the curse. One side would yell a blessing. Now, if you think about it, that would be indelibly printed in your mind. The point was, is the curse and the blessing could not be farther apart. You're either on one side or you're on the other. Right? You can't somehow be on the curse side and also on the blessing side. Just can't happen. This was the last of that list of curses. Curses everyone who does not abide by the things written in the book of the law and do them. Decades later, after Joshua had led the people to conquer the land, they came back to this place. So you essentially have another generation. Basically, the call is, are you going to follow the law? Instead of being on the two mountains, this time, though, they're all in the valley. And Joshua is asking them to make a decision. See, what had happened over those decades, even though the Lord had been leading them into this, into uh, a time of of conquering these places, they could see the Lord at at work and, and giving them victory, many of them had started to adopt some of the local practices. And so Joshua is there saying, are you sure you want to continue in this law? Are you sure you want to continue in this covenant? Are you going to sign on again to this? This is their way out. Because if they just left and said, nope, 
Okay, that, that's one thing. But if you sign on to this now, you are going to be held to the blessings and the curses. They were all in the valley. And he said, you need to get the gods out from among you. They gave answers like, oh, far be it from us to go against the Lord. And Joshua's like, you don't understand. You brought the gods with you. They would have these little talismans, these little figurines that they would bring with them to represent. So you brought them among you. You need to get rid of them. Oh, far be it from us to to not worship Yahweh. We, we promise we'll do it. And Joshua's like, you, you don't understand. I'm telling you, you need to get rid of this. You see, they tried to be somewhere in between to not actually sign on to this covenant. And so a lot of the cross-stitch art that we have that says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We read it wrong. This is a frustrated Joshua saying, you're not doing it. Okay, fine. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. But they all said they would sign on. This was the last curse. I point to that because it's on the screen. But this was the last curse. Curse is everybody who does not abide by all the things written in the law. You sign on to this. You covenant with the Lord you're going to do this. You now have to live by it. Because there will be a blessing if you do it. But a curse if you don't. So this is a very real thing. And what Paul is doing here is he's bringing this back up to talk again about the law in such a way. So just like our our poor little friend, Ignorance, said, I've always followed the things of the law. Well, there's some other things that come along with the law. Because unless you're going to follow it perfectly, it is a curse. What does that say? Curse is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. Verse 11, we have a quotation from Habakkuk. Most people say Paul wrote this in Galatians. This was written by Habakkuk. He's simply quoting him. Verse 11, he says, no one is justified before God by the law. Paul is pointing this thing out. We're talking about a couple of different things. One, we're talking about a way to live. And the other, we're talking about righteousness, faith, salvation. There's nobody justified by the law. So let's imagine that you are in Israel and you've signed on to this covenant. There would be various things that you're required to do to serve the Lord. Obviously there's daily things. There's different, you know, you can look through the dietary laws and all these different things. That's a, that's a whole discussion in itself. But every year, at least, there was a time where you would go to take up a sacrifice. So let's imagine that you're close enough to you can make this pilgrimage and you have the means to buy a little lamb or raise a little lamb every year. So then you take that up. You take up that lamb and you, it's inspected by the priest and you take it in on you know, the Day of Atonement and you go and you actually are required to hold down that lamb and slit its throat and let the blood flow out. And you're required to do that. And the, the idea is as you're holding it down, your sins are transferred to that lamb. But it's, it's not sufficient because guess what would happen the, the next year? You'd have to raise or buy another lamb and, and bring that up and you'd have to do it again. I guess we'd have to do the next year. You'd have to buy a lamb and, or raise it up and you'd have to take it there and do it again. So at a certain point, at what point do you say, this isn't working? There's something wrong. 
because it's not sufficient. And so what do you do with that? There's a certain point where your actions, you recognize that your actions are not good enough. So you know what you have to do? You have to have a real discussion with Yahweh at some time and say, Lord, this isn't working. I I sin every year. I break the law every year. I am cursed. But what other way is there? It's the acknowledgement that there's nothing that they can do to satisfy their own sin. And so you know what they have to do? They have to trust that Yahweh will provide a way. I will continue to obey, but you're going to have to find some way to make this right. Right there is that nugget of faith. It's faith in recognition that whatever you do will never, ever be good enough to satisfy the sin that you've accomplished, the imperfection that we live. It just can't happen. And the reason I'm spending so much time on just these opening points here is because I think we misunderstand what the law really was for. Paul goes on here in verse 12. He says, but the law is not of faith, Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. He said, this is the way that you live. This is, this, is, this is also interesting to think about. This is still a good way to live. You go through the law. There's some amazing principles to live by, but this is nothing that's going to save you. But it's not like the law is an evil thing. It's still a good thing. Verse 12, but the law is not a, oh, we did that one. Law is not a faith. The one who does them shall live by them. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged, who is hanged on a tree. Oh, I'm sorry, the, uh, the previous quotation was from Leviticus, but this one here, this is in Deuteronomy 21, and it, it really does mean this. If you're hung on a tree, you're, you're cursed. And this is the part of theology for us, Christology, I think that is, is difficult for us to really think through. We will point out that in the gospel it says that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but that would mean that in that whole process, that procedure, that sacrificial system, that sin has to transfer. That means that at that point where that Lamb was dying, or in this case Jesus, that sin is then transferred to that Lamb. So in Jesus' case, he is able to redeem because he is righteous, but the only way he can is to be cursed. And since that curse actually had no bearing upon him, he bore ours. Which would mean the only reason he could then conquer death is because of his own righteousness. It's something that we can't do. And so Paul is pointing this out because These are the principles taught by the law. This is what we should understand because of the law. But that doesn't mean that the law is sufficient to save us. Verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This seems like kind of a, a weird turn in the 
teaching that Paul gives here. So he says that in Christ Jesus, in Messiah Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. This doesn't make much sense. What blessing to Abraham? Because at the time, you know, even in the time of Jesus, we go through the Gospels, he talks about this. You know, they, they, they make it a big deal. We're, we're sons of Abraham. We're, the, we're, we're part of Abraham's family. That, that gives us standing before God. We can come to God and talk to him because we're, we're part of Abraham's stock. Right? I've, I've got a name that I can drop so that I can be in God's presence. And what Paul is pointing out is that actually this blessing that Abraham had, this is also for the Gentiles. This doesn't seem to make sense except that Abraham, according to the definition of being Jewish, this is a great question. Um, is Abraham Jewish? What's the definition of being a Jew? It's being a descendant of Abraham. That would mean Abraham is not Jewish. Which then throws off a lot of people's thoughts about Abraham. Maybe even specifically the Jews. Because if you really think about it. What makes Abraham special? What makes Abraham unique? The reason that God called Abraham. This was post Tower of Babel. Post rebellion. All the nations together came together and said. We don't want you as our God. So God said, fine. There's lots of details there we could go through. God said, fine. I'll make my own nation. Very next chapter. God says, hey, Abram. I want you to pick up and leave. I want you to go. Abraham called out of the nations. What was something specific about Abraham and his, and his wife that might complicate the plan to to have a nation through Abraham and or Abram and Sarai, they were. I'm sorry. They were old, and she was barren. Could not have children. What a perfect way for God to make a nation. Because no one could say that this was through the works of Abraham. That this was through the works. Of that called couple. They never could look back to say. See look what we've done. We've done this amazing thing. Bravo to us. They couldn't do it. That's why this is brought up again. The promise given to Abram. To to Abraham. And it's given several places. If you want to just jot these down. The covenant made with Abraham. Is given in several spots. And it's it's kind of cool to to read them in succession, but Genesis, they're all in Genesis, but Genesis 12, 7, Genesis 13, 15, chapter 17, 7, and 24, 7 all reiterate this covenant through different time periods in Abraham's life. Obviously, chapter 12 is the call of Abraham. Hey, leave your country and go somewhere. Okay. Chapter 15, it's reiterated. Chapter 17 is interesting because chapter 17 is after he says, well, we've been waiting a long time. I guess probably um, 
my servant is probably supposed to be my heir. God says, nope. Then Sarai has a great idea. Maybe it's through Hagar, which I know we're going to get to in the next chapter. But uh, yeah, maybe have a kid with her. They had this practice where once the baby is born, instead of the baby being put on Hagar's lap, it's put on Sarah's lap. Like, oh, look, you had a baby. And then that, oh, that's my baby now. Um, Was that it? Nope, because God shows up and says, no, there's still a child coming. That's one of the more perfect examples of what Paul is trying to actually get through. There were a couple different ways that Abraham and Sarah tried to fulfill the covenant themselves. And it didn't work. That wasn't the promise. Chapter 17, after those things happen, says, no, 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 no. You're going to have a child through Sarah and it's going to be your child. That's your heir. Verse 14, just to reiterate here, that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. All of the great works of Abraham were actually just displays of his faith. He'd pick up and, he'd pick up and move. Wherever he'd go, he was a wanderer. He waited. He had a child with his elderly wife. All of these were acts of faith. And yet for some reason, most people would say the reason Abraham is honored by his faith is because he was willing to sacrifice his son. And we sort of rob Isaac of his moment of faith because that's when he willingly said, if this is how it's going to be, he carried the sticks up there. He's not dumb. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He says, where's the sacrifice? The Lord will provide the sacrifice. My son. And in Hebrew, there's a direct object comma there. He knew exactly he was the sacrifice. I said he walked. The two walked on together, which is one of the most haunting verses when you understand that point. All of the acts of Abraham that are worth talking about are simply acts of faith. And I think sometimes we so divide faith and works to the point where we think it's one or the other. What Abraham displays is that his acts were faith. Some of you remember the old song, Trust and Obey? Anybody? Can you sing it? No, you don't have to. But that phrase, trust and obey, trust is obey. Not and, is. That's how we should think of that. This is lived out letter of James. That's what this is. Verse 15. To give a human example, this is Paul talking again. To give a human example, brothers, even with man-made covenants, no one annuls or adds to uh, adds to it once it has been ratified. So he's saying like this, this is how contracts work, right? It's not just later, and especially in this case, hundreds of years, thousands of years later, you just go, oh, now we're just gonna change it. It's like, that's not how contracts work, right? That's not how covenants work. Verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham 
and to his offspring. And not to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. So, getting a little grammary on you, but also this goes back to what we've talked about with prophecy. Because when he hears that this promise is to your offspring, there's really no reason for him to not think that he means the heir. He means Isaac. And Isaac truly was called the child of promise. It was supposed to go through Isaac. But what Paul is pointing out is that, yeah, there might be that near fulfillment, but the point of that prophecy was is that it would be through his offspring, namely Christ, that there was a future offspring that this would come through. Okay, so how does all this stuff line up? I think a lot of times we look at the law and we misunderstand and misapply some of the principles of the law. So we look at it and we say, how are people saved in the Old Testament? I'll ask you that question. How are people saved in the Old Testament? No, that's supposed to be the kicker. Wait a second, wait a second, we'll come back. A lot of people would say, through the law, right? Here's the law, you do this thing, you do the sacrifice, you do whatever. And I've heard that answer many, many times. Many of you are too astute. You gave me the right answer up front, which is great. Um, But the answer is the exact same way that we're saved, which is by grace through faith. So how does that work? Well, for Abraham, if the Lord was able to give him this understanding that when there's an offspring coming, it's not Isaac, that there's one coming. sort of like the Old Testament there's, there's a bank account think of it this way there's a bank account that is used to pay or to redeem souls the Old Testament they're saved on credit just charge it up save everybody who who is uh, to be saved will be saved on, on credit Jesus shows up pays the price pays off the credit, and then makes a deposit. That deposit is sufficient for anyone after. So the Old Testament, they're saved on credit. New Testament, we're saved on debit. It's all paid for. To beginning, beginning to end, all paid for, all done. And if we think of it that way, think about living in the Old Testament with just these promises and a mystery and a cloud. Just to say the promises of God We know God's character. We know who he is. We're going to trust him. That is an insane thought to live your life that way. We have the glorious benefit of actually knowing the story, knowing this one, knowing this Messiah, and being able to say, I know and understand now how this will work. I understand the fulfillment. I think unfairly we... Go to the Gospels and we see the disciples act certain ways and say, oh, you guys, didn't you get it? Jesus was there with you. I would have gotten it. I would have figured it out. I was just thinking about this this last week. This isn't in my notes, but I was just thinking about this this last week. In Genesis 3, you have the deceiver, right? The deceiver tricks Eve, tricks Adam, sin enters the world, right? through that deception. We actually don't see a whole lot of a lot of the discussion of Satan throughout the Old Testament. We see some of the effects, right? We see people making some pretty deceived type of decisions. And then we see in the New Testament as well, here's Satan, he's here to deceive you. Talks about it in Peter, right? There's a, a lion 
roaming around seeking whom he may devour. So we have this deceiver around us, right? Well, think about Jesus. Jesus beat him at his own game because they didn't know what the plan was. Here's the law. Here's all of the prophets. Here's all these stories. And none of them could put it together quite perfectly and actually figure out what was going on. And Jesus just leads them around. Through the ministry of Jesus, we finally get to the resurrection of Lazarus, or I should say coming back to life, it's not resurrected, but you get what I mean. He's brought out of the tomb and they say at that point, we have to kill him. And the father's like, yep, there it was. And Jesus is like, gotcha. Why else would he, he stand before them and be like a quiet lamb before the slaughter? Because they were doing exactly what he needed them to do. And he beats Satan in his own deception. Deceives the kingdom of darkness. Because it says in Corinthians, if they had known what would happen, they wouldn't have killed the king of glory. So this idea that the law somehow was sufficient that somehow gave all of the, the stories and the prophets gave all the stories. It wasn't until Christ comes, until Christ arrives, that this true understanding of who the Messiah is really does show up. And Jesus is, is speaking, he is uh, ministering, and people don't understand what he is talking about. They don't put all these different things together. Look at verse, um, let's go back to uh, verse 16 here. And to your offspring, who is Christ. Verse 17, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul the covenant previously ratified by God. Just because a law comes 430 years later doesn't change it. We now just have two covenants. One, which does provide blessing and curses to those who followed in the land. But another, that was not nullified. It's still there. And in fact, is proper for the Gentiles, even in the Old Testament to be saved. I think we, we might know the story of the, uh, I think it was Naaman. Yes, I'm getting a nodding affirmation that it was Naaman. Uh, but this official, the Syrian official shows up and has leprosy and goes to the prophet, right? Goes to Elijah and says, hey, I have leprosy and my servant girl said that maybe the prophet of Yahweh could help me out. He goes and dips in the Jordan seven times. When he comes back out, the leprosy is gone. He's healed. And so he says, let me pay you. Prophet says, no, <laughs> no, we don't do that here. Um, he says, okay, then let me take some dirt. Let me take a big old wagon of dirt. He says, okay, take your dirt, go home. Dirt? Why dirt? Part of his job was to, as a high official, be part of government meetings and official things. And part of that was worshiping the gods there. So he's bringing dirt with him so he can put some dirt down. And when he kneels, he's kneeling on Israel to worship Yahweh. And so at that, the prophet says, I know where your allegiance is. What did he not do? Oh, here's the book of the law. Here's the calendar of feasts. Here's the times you're gonna to have to come back on pilgrimage. Here's the different sacrifices you have to do because if you worship Yahweh and you wanna be saved, this is what you have to do. No, none of that. 
What was it? Allegiance. Allegiance to Yahweh. An active faith. Verse 18, for by the inheritance comes the law. I'm sorry, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. What we have received in the gospel is an inheritance, which means there is a responsibility to that, but it's the responsibility of inheritors. Verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. So the law was given basically to help people to understand what the standard of God is and was. Now here's what's interesting. You have the law, you should think, I have the law now, it should be easier. The law actually leads people to sin more, to sin better. Because in our rebellious hearts, the more different ways we know of how to violate God's law, guess what we're going to be tempted to do? We're going to be tempted to violate God's law. That is the heart of man, is rebellion, right? Which is why it takes faith beyond works of the law for us to, to really move forward. Now, uh, let's just go back to, to our, our message here, or our, our passage here. Verse 19, why then the law was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels, which I don't love that translation of angels. I think it should just be messengers, but because that's what the word means. It was put there in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Here's basically what it's stating. The law was given to move people to an understanding of what faith, like the necessity of faith really is. That's what it is. And that's the reason for the law. But again, it's tied to this concept of the offspring. Last couple verses here. It is, law, is law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. This concept of the seed is huge. The word that's translated offspring, and I think probably in some of the translations you're looking at might also be descendant, is the seed. This ties it back to Genesis chapter three. This is the promised seed that was prophesied would come through Eve. If we had time to talk more about this concept, we would definitely be dipping back into some of these Old Testament passages to really capture this idea of the seed. In Psalm, it talks about Christ even being of the seed of Melchizedek, the offspring of Melchizedek, in the line of Melchizedek. Who we have in Jesus Christ is the one who fulfills all of the law, who fulfills the prophets, and even is our high priest through Melchizedek. In Mark chapter 12, I think we have a great encapsulation of the concept. In Mark chapter 12, and it's also recorded in Matthew, there's someone who asks, 
where they're having a discussion about what is the greatest commandment? I could ask you, what is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And in Mark it talks about your strength. For those of us who, maybe in the past, maybe now, are still thinking that salvation comes through the law, that we are trying to earn it, and maybe it's not this law, but maybe it's through your actions and through your merit. That is such a narrow view of what it means to please the Lord. Because in Mark chapter 12, Jesus is saying, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. God does not want just your actions. He wants all of you. If you're unwilling to give all of you to the Lord, your allegiance is to someone else. That's just a fact. You hear the, the law about tithing. You know why a lot of people love the law of tithing? Some people read it, you give God 10%. There are people who think, oh, look at that. I get 90. Same with the Sabbath, they use it as a leverage. It's, we have rebellious hearts. It takes more than just actions to earn favor, but also takes more than actions to change our heart. Maybe you can fake it. But the only thing that can change you is for someone else to take care of your sin because you can't. Even all the good that you could accomplish would never be enough because it would not undo our sinful nature. It would not change what we've done. The Lord wants all of you, not just your actions. An eternal quality kind of life that we live in Christ if we do that, guess what we naturally do? We naturally fulfill the law. So you have to think of it this way, right? Fulfilling the law can't bring salvation, but salvation brings fulfillment of the law. And that can only come through faith. We have to trust that what the Lord has accomplished is enough. And if we don't, if we act like Abraham and Sarah and try to bring about the promise through our own actions, we've missed the point. Because Abraham and Sarah didn't leave their country and travel all the way to the promised land because of a physical promise. Yeah, there are physical promises attached to it. But it stated that it's by faith they picked up and moved. And so if you think that somehow you can earn God's favor by doing a thing instead of being one who's aligned with the Lord and placing your faith that what he says is true, then you have trusted in the works or you've trusted in the law. You are trying to accomplish physically what God has already started in the spirit, which is what the Galatians were accused of. We need the Lord. There is no other path. There is no other gate 
to enter except for the narrow one. There is no other path to walk except the path that goes to the cross. So just like poor innocence, or sorry, ignorance, we might find ourselves at the gate, banging on the gate, saying, let me in. I'm saying, you went the wrong way. You should have done what was commanded, which was to obey, which was to trust. Because what Christ requires us to do is to place our faith in him, that he is sufficient, and that is all. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would, Lord, be honest with ourselves. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who understands our insufficiencies, who understands, Lord, that we need you. The gospels are filled with interactions of, with men and officials and leaders who thought that they could somehow earn your favor through physical accomplishments, through doing, Lord, instead of placing their faith in you, the recognition that there was nothing that they could do to earn your favor. Lord, I pray that we would cease from striving, that we would set aside our burden, that we would recognize that the only way that we can walk by faith is to live by faith. It is one and the same. Our trust and our faith lead us to action. Our actions can never save. And so, Lord, I pray that we would, in our own hearts and our own minds, daily align ourselves with this understanding that we would recognize that there is nothing that we can do, and this is the definition of dying to ourselves and instead living in Christ. Lord, I pray that we would do this, that we would line this up for ourselves, that we teach this to our children, that we would then be able to exhibit this before our neighbors, to be able to then speak the gospel, the good news, that all has been paid. We must then place our faith in our Savior. Lord, I pray that this simple gospel would ring in our hearts, that we would remember it, that we would preach it to each other, that we would speak it to each other, that we would not forget, and that daily we would remind ourselves, and even as we go to sleep, we would remember that we are held together only in your hands, that we bring nothing. Lord, we love you. Thank you for the time we have to concentrate on this, and Lord, I pray that you would be honored and glorified in our lives. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.